Hey, um, I was... Often than not, the description is they followed in the footsteps of their father Jeroboam. And we 
know what he's famous for, idolatry, building those two golden calves at the top of his, top of his uh, kingdom and the bottom of his kingdom to keep his people from going to Jerusalem to worship the one true God. And this has been a problem in Israel's history, and God knew that it could be a problem for them. Remember in Deuteronomy, there's that really famous chapter in Deuteronomy that describes the blessing and the cursing, the cursing. And essentially what goes on there in that chapter is God says, you know, if you obey me, if you honor me, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless you this way. I'm going to give you this land. You're going to live in it. You're going to have what you need in this land. But if you don't honor me, if you don't obey me, I'm going to take you out of it. And that's exactly what we see happening. That just fulfills the captivity of Israel and Judah. They are taken away because they refuse to honor and glorify God the way that they were supposed to. With all of that being said, it would be easy to look at God, look at God, and just kind of that's pretty hard. Well, they, yeah, they didn't honor and glorify you, but to, to just basically wipe them out and take them all, rip them out of their land, send them to another land, and you know the Babylonians and the Assyrians, they weren't exactly nice people. You know, they were cruel to the people that they took under uh, into captivity. It'd be easy to look at God and say, man, that's I think if you look over the course of the Bible, one of the things that we have to be struck with is that God's desire has always been to restore them. He doesn't want them to stay in captivity. It's necessary that they're in captivity right now because they need to learn a lesson about how powerful He is and how they need to honor and glorify Him. But He wants to bring them out of captivity. He wants them to honor and glorify Him, and He wants to restore a relationship with his people. But if he's going to restore his people, then something's got to happen. And what's got to happen is the people need to restore their faith and their obedience and their loyalty to God. I think it would be easy to look at these books of Ezra and Nehemiah and look at this theme of restoration and rebuilding and think, well, this doesn't really have a whole lot to do with that. You know, if you studied any church history, there was the period of restoration, but now that's over and we don't really need to worry about any of that anymore. Or we might look at it and go, well, that has a lot to do with somebody who, who falls away from glorifying and honoring God like Israel does, and they need to read these books to see how God wants to restore the relationship. I think that's absolutely appropriate. Or maybe with a group of God's people who have begun to slip away from the pattern that, that God has given us in His Word, it's easy to look at them and say, well, they need to read Ezra and Nehemiah, see how they need to restore their relationship with God, restore their worship to God. But I think these, these books and these themes do have a lot to do with that. They do have a lot to do with us. First of all, I would just suggest to you that restoration and rebuilding is and should be a never-ending it's something that can't end. If we get to the point where we feel like we don't need to continue to look at ourselves and make sure we're doing things the way God wants us to and obeying and honoring Him, and we get complacent, we're in trouble. We've got to be people who are constantly looking at ourselves going, where can I rebuild my faith? 
Where can I restore my worship to God in the way that He wants me to do it? We've always got to be looking. Is this what God wants from me? Is this what God wants from us as a group of His people? Because the moment that we become comfortable with where we are, and we feel like there's nothing else for us to do, there's no more work for us to do, no more growth that can happen, that's the moment that we're placing ourselves in danger of becoming complacent, apathetic, and unmotivated to serve God. And I tell you, that sounds exactly like the Israelites. That sounds exactly like them over the course of their history. They have moments where they're just really, you know, serving God the way they're supposed to, but there are moments where they just clearly get comfortable with where they are. And they begin to fall off and drift off. In fact, I would say, that the times that we see groups of God's people really fall off is because they have become apathetic about restoration and rebuilding. They're no longer looking at themselves, going and looking at God's Word and going, am I following the way that I need to follow God? And so in that sense, restoration, or to put it another way, renewing our love and obedience and loyalty to God should be an ongoing process. It's not something that can begin to change. Or if it does, we're in trouble. And Ezra and Nehemiah are great books for us to look at to see how we can continue to go about this process of evaluating ourselves individually, evaluating ourselves as a group of God's people, and in our relationship with God. And we're going to see, as we work through these books, how God's people should dedicate themselves and rededicate themselves to God. And how God dedicates himself to those who are near us. That's the beauty of this. When we dedicate ourselves to God, he dedicates himself to us. He wants there to be a relationship between us. And I think that's incredibly applicable to us. And one of the amazing pictures of God that we see throughout the Bible, but particularly here in Ezra and Nehemiah, is that God is a God who makes a way for us. He makes a way for us to be restored to Him. He makes a way for His people. Even when things seem impossibly dark, God makes a way. He provides a way for His people to come back to Him. You think about what what's going on with these people in in captivity during the, the time of Cyrus, the king of Persia. You know, the, the people of Israel, they've been taken into captivity over three invasions uh, by the Babylonians. The temple has been destroyed, and if there is a, a sign to us that God is, the, the relationship between his people and God has been broken, it's the temple being destroyed, because the temple signifies God's place with his people. That's gone. God is no longer dwelling among his people. He can't. They're unholy. They've disobeyed him. They're no longer loyal to him. And so now they are in captivity. Things seem dark. Can you imagine being those people in captivity? Just going, I wish I could be back home. Uh, things look awful. You're under the rule of some pretty harsh people, and you're away from home. How will Israel ever make it back? I mean, you look, you look at the situation they're in. 
how will they ever make it back? How will they get back to Israel? How will they be able to ever restore this relationship that needs to be there between them and God? It's a tough question. But Ezra and Nehemiah begin to answer that question for us. Let's begin looking at the text then, beginning in chapter 1, verse 1, going through verse 7. It says, In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all of his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor, from whatever place he sojourns, be assisted by the men of his place, with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred up to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And all who were about them aided them with vessels of silver, with gold and goods, with beasts and with costly wares, besides all that was freely offered. Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his God. God. This story begins, and I think appropriately so, with God. And, you know, Cyrus is the first one named, but I think we, we have to be struck with God is really the, the beginning of this story. And it's appropriate that he is because God desires to have a relationship with his people. That desire hasn't ended, even though he's taken into captivity. He wants to be with them. He wants to have a relationship with them. And God has a heart to restart with his people. He wants to restart and rejuvenate this relationship between him and them. And he wants them to have that kind of heart. He wants them to have a heart that, that desires to restart with him, to be rejuvenated in their relationship with him. I think it's easy to read the first verse and think of Cyrus as, you know, this Gentile king who just decided on the spur of the moment, you know what, I'm going to let these people go back to their home. I'm going to let them go and build their temple, whatever. It's not a big deal. They've been in captivity long enough. They probably served me better over there anyway. But I don't think that's the picture that we, we get here. Because what we find out is that Cyrus does this in fulfillment of the word of God spoken through Jeremiah the prophet. And I think it's amazing that the prophet foretold this event so many years before it actually happened. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 20, verses 10 through 14, doesn't specifically mention Cyrus by name, but it mentions that the people are going to come back to Israel out of captivity after around 70 years. And lo and behold, that's what we're going to see happen. But Isaiah chapter 44, notice 
what happens there in Isaiah chapter 44. Because Isaiah the prophet foretells this exact event in, I, in Isaiah chapter 44 and verse 28. Isaiah chapter 44 and verse 28. This is in the middle of a section where the, the Lord is talking about redeeming Israel. And in verse 28 says, Who says of Cyrus, He is my shepherd, and he shall fulfill my purpose, saying of Israel, She shall be built, and of the temple your foundation shall be laid. All of these years before Cyrus has even come into the picture, Isaiah names this king and says, This is the guy that's going to send my people home. But notice there, it says, Who says well, that's important here in Ezra chapter 1 and verse 1. Because if you notice the middle part of this, it says that the word of the, by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. What? The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus to report. Sometimes we think God is only working through the people, only through Israel, or only through those who follow Him. But what we see here, and this is a profound idea, that God is in control of all of His people. He's in control of it all, and therefore He can use anyone He chooses to use for His purposes. And I think that's an important thing for us to acknowledge. God is in control. We look at Cyrus, we see this great king who's over the Persian Empire, which was the great world power of the day. They took power away from the world power, which was Babylon. They go, nobody's told this guy what to do. Yet here in verse 1, the Lord stirred up Cyrus. God is in control. It's important for us to acknowledge that, and Cyrus himself acknowledges that. In verse 2, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he's charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. He acknowledges God is the one who wants me to do this. He's commanded me to do this. God has stirred him. God has charged him to go about this work. And do you see what God is doing? And I think this speaks to his power. Even if God has to use a Gentile king, his purposes and his plans are going to be fulfilled. It doesn't matter if he's got to use somebody that we wouldn't think he would use. His plans and his purposes are going to be fulfilled. That's why we can have trust in the promises of God. He's going to bring it about one way or another. If his people fail, he'll use someone else. But it's going to happen because God is in control. And we see that here in these first few verses. Even when it seems like it is just absolutely impossible for God's plans to come to fruition, when it seems like the roadblocks are just too high, God finds a way to bust through those roadblocks. We have evidence of that littered throughout the Bible. Read about Abraham and Sarah. 
Well, God promised them a child. What was the problem? Abraham is really old. Sarah is really old. At this point, it seems impossible for them to have a child. It seems like a pretty insurmountable roadblock. God smashes that shit and he gives them a child. Think about Moses. Moses, chosen by God to deliver his people Egypt, Israel out of Egypt, you think about what he's actually being asked to do. He's being asked to go up against the world power of the day. He's being asked to go up against Pharaoh, the one who controls much of the world, who controls a huge army, who can do whatever he wants, and, and God says, you're going to go up and you're going to tell this guy, I'm taking my people out. What a roadblock. Cuts him straight. Smashes right through that roadblock. You come to the New Testament. Think about the time of Jesus' birth. Jesus is two years old or younger when the king, Herod, decides, I'm going to get rid of all of these kids two years and younger. I don't want another king. How can a two-year-old boy stand up, or younger boy, stand up against the king? God takes the king. God smashes the king. God's in control. He's always been in control. It's vitally important that we believe this truth that God is in control. It's vitally important. As I think about you know, renewing my faith, my obedience to God on a daily basis, that's founded upon this very truth. God is in control. His plans will happen regardless of my perception of the roadblock and how high they might be. God's in control. What might have been some of the roadblocks for Israel? Leaving captivity and going back to Israel and beginning to rebuild the temple. Think about it. It's only back. It's going to be dangerous. It's going to be costly. It's a long trip to go back. And then you've got to rebuild the temple. And even if it's not to the former glory of Solomon, you know, the temple was still a pretty special place. They're going to go back to rebuild the temple. It's going to take a lot of precious items. They're going to need enough people to rebuild the temple. They're going to need people to have protection and, and to be and you know to begin becoming a nation again. They've been in captivity for a long time. They're going to be weak, and it would be easy for the surrounding peoples to begin trying to take advantage. Of them, they're going to need people who can lead them in the temple worship once the the temple is finally rebuilt, and they're going to need people who can tell them how to worship. They haven't been in the temple for you know seventy years or so. They need people who can tell them, "Here's how God desires you to worship Him." Those are a lot of roadblocks that seem to be in the way. But here's the deal: God is in control. And when he wants to have a relationship with his people, he makes a way for his people to get there. That's exactly what he does. And so beginning in verses 3 through 11, then, we see God making a way for his people. He begins with Cyrus. But in verse 8, it says, Cyrus, king of Persia, brought these out in the charge 
of Mithridath the treasurer, who counted them out to Shabazar, the prince of Judah. And this was the number of them, 30 basins of gold, 1,000 basins of silver, 29 censers, 30 bowls of gold, 410 bowls of silver. All these did Shishbazar bring up when the exiles were brought up from Babylonia to Jerusalem. I'm not going to read chapter 2 for obvious reasons. I can't pronounce all of those names. But I think chapter 2 is important to tie into all of this as well. So God stirs up Cyrus to send out this decree. Cyrus supports the people by telling the people of the land to give gold and silver, free will offerings, to give goods and livestock to the people who are going to return. There's one roadblock smashed up. You need, you know, money to get there? Here it is. You need animals so that you can survive. Here it is. And really, as you read through that, I think you have to be struck with how this is a new exodus. It is very similar to the people's exodus from Egypt, because you remember at the end, as they're leaving, the people begin to give them all kinds of gold and, and precious items so that they can get out of there. Here we have a new exodus. God is restoring his people. He's sending them back to their land, to his land. And not only that, Cyrus returns the temple articles that, that Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple when he, when he smashed it. Those are precious items that Cyrus is just giving up and giving back to them. Okay, there's another roadblock. It's amazing those temple articles have been preserved by that. Almost like God had a plan. Jeremiah prophesied about this event over in Jeremiah chapter 27. Jeremiah chapter 27, beginning in verse 21, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, concerning the vessels that are left in the house of the Lord and the house of the king of Judah and in Jerusalem, they shall be carried to Babylon and remain there until the day when I visit them, declares the Lord. Then I will bring them back to the court. God's plan. Whatever the roadblocks might seem, He's smashing through this because He uses it to work. As you read through all of these uh, lists of the, the exiles that return, I'll tell you a couple things that stand out to me. First of all, it's a lot of people who decide to go back. A lot of people who, chapter 1 tells us, have their hearts stirred up to go do this. But there are those that are who can serve in the temple. And because they're going back with a specific purpose of rebuilding the temple, that's going to be important. Worship to God is kind of the first thing that needs to get back into its proper place so that they can begin serving God the way that they want to and the way that they need to. There's something that is repeated to all of this, and it's important in connection to this truth that God is in control, is the idea of the temple. In verse 3, they're told to go build a temple. In verse 4, they're told about the gifts for the temple. In verse 5, people prepare to go build a house for the Lord. In verse 7, the articles for the temple return. It's all about the temple. Their return right now is all about going back and rebuilding the temple. And again, you remember what I said the temple signifies. 
signifies God with the people. It's where His presence would come down and dwell among His people. And because God is in control, He's making it possible for His people to restore the temple, to restore the worship in the temple, and to restore their obedience to faith. God is making it possible. And we see that in two ways. We see that in the amount of provisions that they are given to go about this task. And we see it in the amount of people that are stirred up by God to go do this. So there are two truths that we need to keep in the forefront of our mind. God is in control. That's vitally important for us. Secondly, God desires to have a relationship with us. That's unashamed with us. All because He wants to have a relationship. The question is, you know, this, this is all about the Israelites. What does all this have to do with us? What's the point for us? What does this mean for us individually as as people? We aren't, so to speak, in a physical captivity like Israel was. You know, we live in America. We haven't been taken out of America. We haven't been taken to another nation. But I do think there is a captivity that is upon us. Captivity of sin. And sin poses a pretty significant roadblock to a relationship with God that God desires to have with Because what sin does is it separates us from God. There's no relationship there if sin is in the picture. That's a pretty, you know, insurmountable roadblock. At least it is to us. Here's that truth. God is in control. And God smashes through that roadblock of the Notice the passage with me over in 1 John chapter 3. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. There's the roadblock. Sin. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the work of the devil. If that doesn't show you that God is in control and God desires to have a relationship with, with His people and God makes a way us to have that relationship. I don't know what else would. That's exactly why Jesus came, because God has this plan to have to have people in a relationship with him. The roadblock seems to be there. God smashes through it. How are we going to respond to that? What does that do to us? The question is, then, will we be stirred by the word of God the greater faith, the greater love, and the greater obedience, the way that these Israelites were stirred to go back to Israel, restore the temple, restore their worship to God, and restore that faith. Will we be stirred by God?
failing. When we accept God's conditions of repentance and submission, God made it happen. God torn down the roadblock. What will we do now? But I don't think, think that this is just for us individually as well. I think we also have to view these first couple of chapters as a congregation. I think this is important for us because Ezra chapter 1 wasn't just an individual effort. It's a national effort. It's a group of people effort to restore their relationship with God, to renew their relationship with God. And I would suggest to you that as a group of God's people here in Jacksonville, doing some truth, our desire should be to have a relationship with God collectively as well. It begins individually, but that feeds into our collective relationship with God. And we'll talk about this more in future lessons from Ezra and Nehemiah, but I want to leave you with this tonight. This is a challenge for us as a group. And I, I, I want to make this a challenge for us to think about and to really ponder as a group of God's people. We need to be active in identifying the areas where our relationship to God and our obedience to His design and purposes need to be renewed and restored. we got to do that as a group of God's people. We need to be active in trying to identify those areas where we just need to do that. And I mean more than just what we do in worship. More than, you know, singing about instruments or, or praying or, or speaking from God's Word or the Lord's Supper. There, there's more to it than just that. We need to evaluate. And, and as I... I'll just say this. It's always a focus to make sure we're doing those things there that God wants us to do. And we need to evaluate that as well. But there are other areas that we need to think about as well. There are other areas that we have commands from God. We need to evaluate whether we're following them. We have a command to be evangelistic. Are we doing that? Evaluate whether we are doing that as God's people. We're commanded to be hospitable. Are we doing that? Are we making that an effort to be hospitable to one another and to those who aren't even among us? We're commanded, we talked about this this morning, we're commanded to be generous. Are we being generous? Gotta evaluate that. We're commanded to have a love for one another. Is that evident? Is that obvious? Gotta evaluate. That and the list could just go on and on, but these are the these are a part of our congregational relationship with God. And if we are lacking in an area, we need to identify it, and we need to begin renewing our devotion to God in that area. Our relationship to God, both individually and congregationally, is so important. That is one of the most important things that we could we could possibly have is the relationship with God. Because that relationship with God is what's going to help us serve Him here so that we can meet Him there. Don't
activity of this life and enjoy the fullness of a relationship, the full-on presence of God in our lives. I do. I hope that you do too. But while we're here on this earth, our relationship with God is everything. That's why it's important that we think about this theme of restoring our need, evaluating what God desires from His people, evaluating everything. If there's an area that we find ourselves lacking, we need to get to work. We need to get to work restoring the need so that our relationship with God is what it needs to be. I appreciate your attention this evening. If you're not a child of God, this is an opportunity for you to make that change in your life. God desires to have a relationship with you. And he is in control, therefore he has made a way for you to be in a relationship with him. It begins with faith and belief in him, and it, it, it begins in the waters of baptism. There you can be washed and made a new creature devoted to God. I'm going to urge you to do that this evening. If you are a child of God and you're struggling with something in your life, maybe you've done that individual evaluation and you realize there's something lacking. We want to help you to fill up what's lacking. That's our aim. That's why we look at God's Word, so that we can find where we are lacking, so that we can be strengthened to serve God better. If you have any need this evening, we ask.